Season 2, Episode 4 of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found in a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Here in Season 2, we're focusing on hydrocarbon extraction and post-processing, with each episode digging deep into a particular stage in that process. The shows are released in an order that follows the workflow through a lab, as material makes its way from cultivar to concentrate. Last season, we worked our way through an ethanol extraction lab, starting with biomass and following it all the way through to either distillate or isolate. This season, we'll do the same, but with hydrocarbon extraction and all the highly sought-after craft concentrates that this style can produce. Last week, we talked to Lexis Schantz, founder and CEO of Solvent Direct, about the various solvents, gases, and blends used in the hydrocarbon and ethanol extraction processes. We talked about Solvent Direct's industry-leading approach to solvent quality, as well as their forward-thinking logistics that allow the high-quality solvents that they offer to be delivered in the fastest, most efficient ways possible. In today's show, we'll talk to Boris Kogan, the founder and CEO of BusyBee. Hands down, the most important part of our hydrocarbon extraction process is the decision of which closed-loop extraction system we select to extract with. Get ready to go deep with Boris on BZB equipment design and operation. We discuss his choice to make modular, easily scalable systems, how to run those systems, and why he says passive is the clear choice over active recovery. Well, that's enough out of me. Let's get into it with Boris. Boris Kogan, founder and CEO of BZB. Welcome to the Modern Extractor. How's it going? Hey, great. Where are you calling in from today? I am sitting in my home office in Seattle, Washington. Just flew back from L.A. this morning. Right on. I'm, uh, I'm here in Los Angeles in my, uh, in my home studio recording the interview. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me, uh, talk to me a little bit about what Busy Bee is and what your path looked like to, to start in the business. Wow. Okay. Well, in 2013 in Washington State, the voters approved an initiative called I-502 that legalized cannabis recreationally in Washington. It was also the same year I graduated from college. I graduated kind of late in my early 40s, having taken a bunch of time off to do a bunch of different things. And I had a degree in computer science and I had a job lined up working at Microsoft, a fancy job. But at the same time, I'd also put in about 15 years in the trenches in the weed game. And I sort of felt like I paid my dues to both these industries and I didn't want to let either of them pass me by. So I ended up buying an extractor from ETS, their 1300, I think it was a 1200 at the time. And I just started teaching myself how to make shatter in the evenings after my day job. And that's kind of how it all began was making hash oil 2013. That's not what you hear from uh, from every Microsoft employee after they, they get back from work. <laughs> well, I had been in university for three and a half years, sleeping an average of four hours a night. So it really was no thing to me to work two jobs simultaneously. And, and I was really so passionate about the hash oil and the cannabis side of things. Um, it was like I forced myself to go to work in the morning and then you know, six o'clock rolls around and I would get to leave and go to my lab. So I could tell where the excitement was coming from. And um, after about a year of doing that, I think I lasted 14 months at that Microsoft job, which is the longest I've ever held a corporate job. Uh, The previous record being 12 months. And uh, 
Yeah, I went full time doing Busy Bee. Basically, when the orders started coming in to the point that a month's revenue equaled a year's salary, I knew I that the day job was holding me back. Let's put it that way. It really did all start off as, you know, a bunch of kids making hash oil uh, during the medical days. And then as rec licensing came online, so really to the end of 2013, mostly 2014 is when I kind of did all the design work. Um, well, so after learning how to make hash oil and shatter, I started trying to adapt the equipment to make that easier and better, which mostly has to do with getting cold. And we sort of invented our own form of secondary stage single solvent de-waxing using liquid CO2 refrigeration. And that's kind of what gave birth to the business was the liquid CO2 cooling, the secondary um, secondary column single solvent de-waxing that actually worked. And the reason we knew it actually worked was that we could see inside the vessels because we developed a bunch of clear lids for collection pots and sight glasses for columns that actually gave you visibility into the process. And so you could see the precipitation happening. You could see when it was finished. And that's really what gave birth to the business. That combined with Instagram, which allowed me to almost vlog my nightly experiments, um, just kind of created this huge storm of a following you know, first a thousand followers and then 10,000 followers and really the best and the brightest in the industry. We all kind of shared our experiences daily and nightly in the lab and got to know each other. And that's kind of what gave birth to the business was word of mouth, this kind of live experimentation and um, the forum that Instagram gives you. Yeah, we're certainly all uh, all stronger together. Mm. Uh, so if that's how it all began, Give us a give us a bird's eye view of what BizEB is now. What uh, what are your current uh, equipment offerings, and what are you guys doing as a business? Well, we you know for that first year, two thousand fourteen, we were mostly focused on making oil, which allowed us to do the R and D on ourselves. In in the software industry, they have a term called eating your own dog food or dog fooding, which means you run your own code. So, like I did a three month internship at Google, and believe it or not, Google is run off Google Docs. You don't need Microsoft Office to run a business because Google is a business and it runs off Google Docs. Um, that's an example of eating your own dog food. So everybody in the company is actually using the product they're producing and finding the bugs themselves. And that's literally how we were born. You know, we started off with an ETS. It was an unjacketed column. There wasn't any support, really. I tried to get them to make me a jacketed column. I couldn't even get a callback. So I hired a welder and made a jacketed column. And Thus, a series of experiments were born that brings us to today. Um, after about a year of making hash oil, the rec licensing started to take effect. And we're not, we're great inventors and tinkers, but we're not great at paperwork. And uh, so we kind of got chased around by licensing. First, we went down to Oregon and worked in Portland for a while. And then we came back to Seattle. And by then, the demand for the extractors was so strong. We were just actually, there was more demand for extractors than extractions. And so my first two employees and coworkers and friends, Calvin and Kyle, they first came on board and we taught them how to make oil. And then we all came back from Portland to Seattle and we just started building these machines in end of 2015, really beginning of 2016. And that's when it took off. Um, you know, we started off with a system I called the beast, which was a big play on words for busy bee and the fact that 
operating these machines just felt like you were wrestling with a beast. Um, at the time, we had like ground collection pots that would be in a tote full of hot water and you'd pick it up and take it out of the tote and put it back in, just turn on and off the heating. And, you know, we connected that to the bottom of the material column with a hose and I called it a tentacle. And um, <laughs> the, the collection pot became the pod and that's the pods and tentacles. And really it's all born of smoking a lot of weed and staying up late at night and um, just <laughs> joking around and talking shit and making up words and making up stuff and putting it on Instagram. And I consider the business almost half a comedic shtick and half, you know, a real business selling things. Um, yeah. That was one of the things that I was actually wanting to bring up was uh, you certainly have developed a bit of a, a personality in the industry and you've got your own vernacular for sure that you use. Um, and, and as we go on, uh, maybe we'll, we'll go through some of the stuff right now. I actually wrote, <laughs> wrote a few things down. So nice. the beast I already had on the list. So that's the, that's the machine. Yeah. Uh, now, now what, what is a Wrangler? Oh, a Wrangler. Okay, this comes back to wrestling with the beast. Is It just felt like we were wrangling cattle or something. You know, it was, we weren't just turning knobs. We were actually, like, spiritually wrestling with this thing. And <laughs> so I started calling us and our clients who do the same thing. I called us Wranglers. And it's just one of those words that sticks, kind of like jingle Kind of like a jangler. Well, that was my next thing on the list. What's a jangler? The next one. I think jangler is the word I'm most famous for, actually, because other people bite it. And I have to remind them on Instagram that those are my words and you should make up your own. But, um, you know, jangling is kind of what happens at like 2 a.m. when you've already been smoking weed for eight hours and it's just not getting you high anymore. And you're just not getting that much done. You want to do one more run, but it's like you just keep making dumb mistakes. That's jangling. Kind of stumbling and bumbling, jingling and jangling. So then if you do something stupid, then you did something jangly? Yeah, that's jangly. Exactly. All right, all right. Or, or, a, or a system that someone makes that's kind of stupid and has a bunch of extra dumb things on it that it doesn't need, that's also kind of jangly. All right, all right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it now. Which actually is a great segue just for a, a concept, which is that our philosophy of design is one of Occam's razor or minimalism, which if something doesn't add function to the machine or if it if it doesn't have a purpose it's eliminated and so we end up with just the minimal functional design you know everything that doesn't work or ideas that are superstitions like channeling and bottom feeding notice nobody really bottom feeds anymore it just isn't necessary so it's eliminated it adds complexity to the system which adds cost so everything is just um Form follows function. You know, I, I am into aesthetics. I started my college career as an art major for two years. And I consider our equipment functional sculptures, but still the functional is the keyword. Much like military hardware is beautiful, but it's driven by function. That's kind of the idea behind our systems. All right. So that's part of your thermodiamagic? Well, thermodynamic is different. Oh, another term. This is also <laughs> my fit. Mm, this term I trademarked. Thermodynamic is a portmanteau, a combination of two words to make a new word. And it's just a joke. It plays on the idea of thermodynamics and magic. And some people say magic is science you don't understand. I think there's magic in the science we do understand. I think the physical world, as we describe it through careful observation and um, model construction, which is what science is. I think there's magic in the real world the way it actually is. We don't have to make shit up. 
the magic in the thermodynamics is that when you get really cold in our, this is in our context, when you get really cold, which I call about negative 60 Celsius, not Fahrenheit, Celsius. It's about 80 Fahrenheit, negative 80 Fahrenheit. When you get really cold, the vapor pressure of the N-butane itself is very low. It, it no longer is, it's a subcooled liquid. Um, it's basically got maybe one or two PSI absolute of vapor pressure above it. So it's kind of like water is at, at Earth's surface at one atmosphere. It's, it's a liquid, it's not boiling. It's not even near its boiling point. And when you get everything else out of the vessel that the butane is in, you vacuum out all the air to begin with and you purge out whatever nitrogen's been added, then there's nothing else there to contribute vapor pressure. So, you know, you're going to have one or two PSI absolute in the system, which, you know, in a PSI gauge scenario, which we're most used to, where zero is, you know, one atmosphere, that would read as like negative 13 or 14 PSI or... 26, 28 inches of mercury, roughly. Don't hold me accountable for that. But the point is that it's a vacuum, it's, and, it, and it will stay a vacuum just based on the temperature. And that's the thermodynamic because there's no difference between a vacuum created by a pump or a vacuum created by temperature. They both have low pressure. They'll both suck. And that's how passive recovery is driven in our systems. Gotcha. Well, let me so, wrangle you back in here. Uh, we'll we'll get to a little bit more of a technical side of this in just a minute. Okay. Um, but I wanted to cover some uh, some of your vocabulary so everybody was following following what we were talking about. Please. So uh, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you specifically today um, is because of the way that you've changed the game with hydrocarbons, and your products are constantly evolving and making advancements and all of that. So uh, I love the facts the fact that you guys build modular systems mm. that are easily added to, easily upgraded. Um, tell us a little bit more about that business model and why you decided to take that approach to building extractors. Yeah. So that really comes from my prior experience uh, getting a degree in computer science and being trained to be a computer engineer prior to undertaking this. So probably a solid five years of training went in from 2010 to 2014 when I stopped working at Microsoft full time. And I mean, I can't even describe to you the rigor of a computer science education at a major university, but they teach you concepts that are designed to help you big, build big complex systems out of smaller parts. That's where this concept of modularity comes in. Um, and hierarchy. And so I really applied the knowledge and education they taught us to build computer systems to this task, the closed loop system, where it makes sense to have reusable things. Like we make, I don't know, five main column sizes. I think if you add up all the cauldrons, it comes up to seven or eight, but they're all interchangeable and generic. What makes there's about five different machine functions, solvent, well, solvent and recovery. We combine them into one, but solvent recovery, material collection or evaporation. Um, and then DWAX or CR filtration. And then there's a molecular sieve. Well, any of our columns can be made into any of those functions simply by the types of lids we put on the tops and the bottoms and the other attachments and the plumbing. So that's an example of modularity. And it's useful because then we only have to make and stock seven or eight different columns and everything else is on the ports. But it's even more valuable for the client 
who can reconfigure these machines practically on the fly. A client can double the volume of a, of a system simply by buying two more of the larger size columns. And then those caps are portable. They just go, they just musical chair onto the next size up. Yeah, I was just looking at an Instagram post for me the other day with a whole, whole beautiful picture full of caps. There you go. We have like a, basically a wall full of caps with different port configurations. So this is literally comes, if anyone in the audience is familiar with object-oriented programming, I mean, these are like the three pillars of object-oriented programming, which, oh gosh, if I get these right, abstraction, hierarchy, and polymorphism, I believe. But we sort of implement all of those in our system by having a very generic set of columns that are agnostic, but we change them by how we implement their cap interfaces. Um, it also allows us to completely reconfigure systems, upgrade them, double them in size. Each vessel actually doubles from the previous smaller vessel. So you can double a system size just by sliding everything up one size. And since they're all reusable, you just reuse them for different functions. So yeah, it's just, it's all, um, it's basically applying a very careful engineering methodology to our task at a strategic level. It certainly seems like the best approach um, f- when, when looking from the client's perspective, but I would imagine that there's some businesses out there that, that wouldn't want to approach it that way because that would mean that they would sell less full new complete systems. Well, this kind of brings up a difference in philosophy between me and most of my competitors, which is that we're, I'm not trying to just sell people something to make money off them and then kiss them goodbye and never talk to them again. We literally are building lifetime relationships with each of our clients. They come back for more. I mean, first of all, they come to us usually by referral because we don't spend much money on marketing. And then they come back sometimes every year and spend, we've got clients that come back every year and spend another million. You know, we have clients that have started with the smallest extractor we make and built it up gradually from a hexapod to a double rack to a multi-rack with butane falling films. There's really all types. that's a really fantastic segue, actually, into a little bit more technical side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to make sure that everybody that's listening kind of understands and is on the same page with what we're talking about. So give us a little bit of an overview of what a busy bee system is. So set the scene for us a little bit. So we walk into our C1D1 extraction booth, see a busy bee system sitting there. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say for your mid-range system, what am I looking at? Describe what I'm going to see uh, and, and, and what I'm going to do with it. Well, so kind of jumping back to that last concept I said about five different machine functions, pretty much you're going to see some some representation for each of those functions. So because there's so much breadth of what we make from like a $15,000 system that would have a material column and a collection on the rack you'd see, and then some tanks on the ground in, with dry ice, that's how we keep the price down. So we can get a starter system going for fifteen k and then that same starter system when it's fully built out, would be a quad or a hex. That's either uh, four or six columns on a rack. The racks are double-sided. Those are both what I call mono racks, meaning all of the machine functions are on one rack. Um, in, in process engineering, these machine functions would be called unit operations. You know, so the the primary extraction vessel or the what we call the collection pot in our industry is technically a batch evaporator to a process engineer. Um, as the machines get bigger, it doesn't make sense to have 
long hose runs trying to connect everything. So we try to group columns into functional groups and put them on their own racks. And that's the first, we call it the evolution of the beast from the smallest mono rack to the largest multi-rack. Um, you know, the first thing we do is cluster the material columns together on their own rack and we'll put four of them on their own rack. Um, and by then they're usually the large size material columns, which are 20 liters. They hold 10 to 20 pounds each. So that's a 40 to 50 pound rack conservatively. And then that allows the rack to become a, a unit of work, essentially a 40 to 50 pound unit of work. And now you can replicate material racks. So in a really big installation, you might see a whole bunch of racks all serving different functions and purposes. Um, for most people that think of like an ETS MEP or a PX10 or something like that, that's equivalent to our quad or our hexapod. Um, all the machine functions are on one rack at standalone. So you might come into a booth and see one or two or three of those. But we like to, as we scale up, we'll take two hexapods, put them together, but re-rack them into a double rack. That puts your material columns all on their own rack and everything else for handling solvent in what we call a utility rack. So we're decomposing the problem. This again comes back to computer science where we try to decompose a problem into subproblems and decouple the subproblems from their interdependencies so that we can solve each one independently. And that's what allows us, for instance, as we scale up, we might go from collection pots to a butane falling film. And it's literally, they both do the same thing. They do it differently, but they both plug into that solvent recovery function. So what would be the, the smallest system that you would put a butane falling film on reasonably? Well, those things will rip three to six pounds a minute. So I wouldn't put them on anything small. I put them on, they're, they're really for multi-rack systems. So we really have three categories, the monoracks, the double racks, the multi-racks. Multi-racks are kind of the unlimited category. Just We have all different kinds of rack configurations that we can add to them. For certification, because we don't want to be limited to the serialized models that most other manufacturers are sticking to, we've basically invested in catalogs for each of these categories that capture all of the options available. And then the, the PEs, we work with 3P certs because they shared our vision. They saw my vision of this incredibly modular, flexible system because we're reusing the same components all the time. Why do we have to go through a whole new model just to reuse the same stuff in a different configuration? So they saw that and they shared my vision and they helped me develop these catalogs. And now we just specify a custom unit from the options available in the catalog. It becomes a site-specific field review. We can also make serialized models for the more conservative markets like Denver and Colorado and Canada. Um, we're actually working on our CRNs right now for Canada, and we're going to do Denver at the same time. So we're just going to take the most conservative um, configuration to those markets. Okay. For, from a uh, from a podcasting standpoint, the way I like to listen to podcasts is when I'm not sitting in front of my phone or sitting in front of my computer. I'm kind of doing something when my hands are full. Mm -hmm. So just so we can help listeners that that aren't able to just Google this up, uh, kind of imagine what this looks like. Let's uh, let. Can you set the scene for me about what it would look like if you walk into a C1D1 room, you've got uh, a, a multi-rack system and your butane falling film, uh, what that actually looks like from, like from start to finish if you go from your solvent tank at the beginning? Totally. Well, there's pictures of them on my Instagram if people want to look at that stuff. It's uh, BizzyB999, B-I-Z-Z-Y-B-E-E-999. 
Um, but roughly, you know, you've got a bunch of vertically oriented, shiny stainless steel columns on racks. And um, we have some sort of tank-shaped objects on racks as well. There's a lot of sight glasses with us. Um, there's a lot of visibility into the system. And then it's all connected together with these beautiful swage lock fittings. It's The whole thing's kind of a fetish object because uh, you don't really need swage lock for these pressures. But hash nerds just really enjoy it, including me. And, I can uh, attest to that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, for a multi-rack, you might see, well, we have one in our booth that's kind of a small multi-rack. It's two what I call cauldrons. They're just big tanks. They're jacketed tanks. They're ASME stamped and rated to 250 PSI. And these are 100 liters, but we also have 200 liters. And we're using one for solvent and one basically as a surge tank before the falling film. But one is to throw and one is to catch. Essentially, the surge tank is like a collection pot. So we got 100 liters is about, I think, 125 pounds of butane, and we get it cold down to negative 20, and that um, we're doing crude on this system, so we only go to neg 20. But we'll get it down to neg 20 off a chiller, and then we just push that whole slug of solvent through a quad rack of large material columns and catch it in the collection pot. And then once it's caught, we can then turn the material columns over, unload them, load them again, and we can actually get two of these slugs of solvent in flight at once if we have enough, if we double our solvent and collections. But from that surge tank, we'll then push it through the falling film and rip all the solvent off and send it back to the collection. So that surge tank is decoupling the falling film from the flow rate through the material columns, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it, important. It allows us to preheat it a little bit, pressurize it, and push it into that falling film as fast as we can. Okay. So you guys you guys are making some of the highest tech stuff that's out there in the, uh, in the hydrocarbon extraction world. Um, some of the highest quality, like you were touching on earlier, with the swage lock fittings and making it look top of the line so i mean in my opinion you're building the the luxury cars out there if you're going to use the car model thank you um so uh, you touched on this a little bit but uh for the people that uh that, that actually run hydrocarbon extraction systems out there um put us behind the wheel a little bit give us a give us a run through of what it's like when you walk up to a system so you you walk into the room and now what you start by loading the column yeah so hopefully the columns are already loaded when the extractor walks into the room because his coworkers have so diligently preloaded it for him or her. And uh, <clears throat> so let's assume our material columns are already loaded. I mean, the first thing we need to do, I'm going to just talk from the perspective of like a mono rack hex. So we're talking about the same thing. You got two solvent columns, you got two material columns. If we're doing live resin, we've got, and it's CO2 powered, we've got CO2 on all of them. Or if it's a chiller, they're all chilled. Um, there's a ground tank that's sized appropriately to hold all the solvent in it. So if we have each of these solvent columns is um, 20 liters, which is about an LP5 DOT tank, holds roughly 25 pounds of butane with headspace. So two of them on a standard hex is gonna give you 50 pounds. You're gonna have a 10 gallon tank on the ground to hold that. The solvent's gonna be in the tank. We're gonna use some nitrogen or cool the, the solvent columns down. Either way, use a pressure gradient to move the solvent up into the solvent columns. Part of the reason why we use solvent columns is because they have a, a high aspect ratio. It's a, it's a long, thin tube instead of a short, round tank, which actually 
maximizes, gives you more surface area per unit volume than a short round tank would because the sphere is the most efficient surface area to weight sheet. We actually want um, more surface area per unit volume so we can get more heat exchange. So we use these solvent columns as heat exchangers and we cool our solvent down to neg 60 C if it isn't already. A lot of times after a recovery is done, because we're doing passive at neg 60 C, that tank is full of neg 40 to begin with. Um, but we cool it down, and these solvent columns are good for pre-cooling our liquid to inject. They're also great ways to measure quantity because we know their volume, so we know how many pounds of solvent they hold. So we can measure our solvent against our material weight and always be running roughly 5 to 1 or 6 to 1. Um, we like to run it in two batches, so it's like 3 to 1 once and 3 to 1 again. Um, and if you want higher ratios, you add more solvent columns. But once you're done at temperature, you use some nitrogen pressure, doesn't take a lot, and you maybe 20 PSI up to 50, and you push it through the material columns. We can actually see when our solvents worked all of our way to the bottom of the material column because it comes back up a hose and drops into the collection pot. It's, it's a column. We call it the collection column. Uh, we also call it a rack tank It's a, or a 10-12. It's a 10-inch vessel inside a 12-inch vessel with tank heads, fully jacketed with a six inch clamp, just like the six inch columns have six inch clamps. In fact, we have a five inch column. I think we're the only people with a five inch column. It actually has a utility patent on the design and it uses a six inch clamp as well. So pretty much everything from the medium size, the five, six column to the six, eight, the 10, 12, 100 liter cauldron, 200 liter cauldron, they all use the same six inch clamps. So all the caps, all the sight glasses, centered mesh, filter spools, everything, jacketed bowls. They're all interchangeable between these different size, different volume vessels. Um, but there's a dip tube that drops down from this hose in a sight glass on the collection column. So you can see when the solvent gets to the bottom of the material column, it's going to go up that tube and you're going to see it spraying down into your collection. So you can see when your solvent's worked its way to the bottom. You can give it a stall if you want to soak it. You can see the color that's coming through. You can see when you've washed most of the good stuff out. Um, and you can also see when your collection is full so that you don't overfill it. Because you don't want that foam boiling up and aspirating into your molecular sieve. Um, you want to keep the foam out of the sight glass. So anyways, once you've run all your solvent through your material, we'll chase it with some nitrogen just to push everything out. And then there's a whole SOP for how to get the majority of that solvent out of that material column, but we won't go into all that detail. We fill that collection pot up and then we start the recovery process. So that same solvent column that was used to cool the liquid and inject it is also going to take the place of our recovery pump. Because once it's empty, it might have 20 PSI of nitrogen in it or 50, we can burp it out of there. We'll either burp it directly into the plenum. We can have a hose that's connected right into the plenum of our booth burp it into there, or you can just burp it in front of the plenum. But um, either way, you burp it down to zero, and now you still have, remember, that's zero PSI gauge, so you still have about 14.7 PSI of nitrogen in there, maybe one or two PSI of butane at that temperature. So we use a intrinsically safe Venturi vacuum pump to suck that out, and it's kind of interesting because the same nitrogen we use to create pressure is now being used to create vacuum. And then once the nitrogen's out of the system, I, that's what I call the thermodynamic vacuum. That's the thermodynamic, is that once the nitrogen's gone, it'll stay in a vacuum. 
even once you connect it to the collection. It'll start, if your collection is at 20 PSI, let's say, and 20 degrees Celsius, 20 PSI gauge, and you connect it to a solvent column that's down at 28 inches of mercury and it's empty, they'll kind of both come together in the middle at about zero PSI. And that, that solvent vapor will just condense right on the walls and just sheet down the walls of the um, recovery column, the solvent recovery column. And if you're using CO2, liquid CO2, then the operator is kind of standing there monitoring it and regulating the CO2. And if you're on a fancy chiller like a Huber 915W, you can pretty much walk away. Um, we actually incorporate um, tube and shell heat exchangers into this part of the process when we're doing the electropassive TM stuff because uh, they're just even more efficient at recovery with a chiller. But with liquid CO2, it's got such a low temperature and so much power that it'll recover one or two or even three pounds a minute each. I think each of these recovery columns will get two pounds a minute if you can provide adequate vapor. The challenge is actually getting enough heat on your evaporation to generate the vapor. And then you end up with your solvent back where you started in the tank. We let it drain out of the columns and fill the tank so that the columns, you know, if they if they're half full, then half of their surface area is covered. So they're only half as efficient at heat exchanging and condensing. So we drain into the tank and then we're ready to go again. Pull columns, pull material column, pull socks, repack. Although all of our designs incorporate redundant material columns. So you can be pulling and packing while you're running. And you're basically just waiting for your solvent to get back to, waiting for your recovery to be done, get your solvent back to temperature and bam, you're ready to go again. Okay, so uh, a question popped up while you were talking about that. Um, you mentioned electropassive recovery. Uh, I know that is uh, one of your trademark words. I thought that that primarily had to do with your butane falling film, but is there a separate system that you offer that's not the butane falling film that uses the tube and shell and the electropassive recovery? Yeah, absolutely. We, okay. we take what I call the rainbow off of the falling film, which is basically the... Um, it's a hot jacketed column, which has emulsive beads in it and a four inch U fitting out of stainless. And then that connects to a six inch heat exchanger. So it basically, if we feed vapor into the bottom of that hot molecular sieve, that vapor is all going to come up and over and get captured in the, um, in the cold condenser. We'll take that part off of the falling film and add it to ordinary batch type evaporator like collection pots and columns so we have a thing called a dual collection rack it has two 50 liter collection columns on it made out of 10 12 rack tanks and then on the back side is the, the rainbow so anytime solvent gets into either of those collections it just instantly starts raining out of the condenser and then sometimes we'll just take a condenser itself and put it on the side of a mono rack for instance or a like a, a double racks utility rack will get a heat exchanger on the end of it. And we call that electropassive too. Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, move, move along to, uh, to the next little question I have for you. Um, one of the, one of the big perks that, that you guys talk about at busy Bee is the single solvent D wax. So in the early days, I know a lot of people used to dissolve their extracted oil and ethanol and winterize it and go through all of that hassle. Um, Tell us a little bit about single solvent de-wax and how that works to help you avoid all that. Yeah. 
So SSDW, as we call it, was a big topic in 2014 and 15. And guys used to do crazy stuff like they'd open blast into Erlenmeyers and put those on dry ice and let them, they would get so cold that they would drop the wax out. And it's so cold when you're like negative 78.5 Celsius that you don't really have to worry so much about vapors because there's not a lot of vapor, but it is dangerous as heck. And then they pour that through Buchner funnels. It's insane, actually. The whole thing's insane. But I remember a guy, a, fa- a friend of mine, be unnamed, who uh, said one day at a presentation that his friends were all doing this technique, and I was just stunned by it. And I knew that Ari and Sweetleaf had their closed-loop de-waxing system. So I sort of set out to fix this problem, you know, um, kind of adapting Ari's system into something that was done with columns side by side and using the liquid CO2 to cool it, which was kind of like my brand new invention at the time. And it was a big deal in 2015 and 16. It allowed you to actually make slabs that would be a B you know, you could make them a shade lighter and a lot more stable by single solvent de-waxing them. And in fact, to the extent that I know people who took 200 kilos of brown slabs and re-dissolved them and de-waxed them as soon as they got one of our systems and and improved the whole batch. But it's a lot of labor. It's a lot of work to clean out the de-waxer. It's kind of actually how we started making crude oil and distillate was we had to wash out these de-waxers and that that wax was still 50% THC. Um, it's kind of gone out of favor now because of live resin. Everyone just freezes it and runs it live. And live resin is kind of the way you run fresh frozen is what I call primary column de-waxing. The single solvent de-waxing we were doing, I call secondary column. You have an empty column, you fill it up with liquid solution, then freeze that down and precipitate the waxes. With primary column, you just freeze the material column keeps your fresh frozen frozen and it's so dang cold you don't dissolve the wax to begin with it's actually a very efficient technique from a production point of view might not be quite as effective as secondary but every time someone tries to do secondary de-wax on something that's already been primary de-waxed you just don't get much out of it It doesn't seem worth doing it's not as effective as ethanol de-waxing because winterization uses the polarity of the ethanol molecule to push the waxes out of solution in fact you can break Break crude down in ethanol at room temperature, you get a whole lot of wax for a first filtration. So you can take SSDW oil, redissolve it in ethanol, freeze it, and you'll see precipitation, but much, much, much less. So doing it as a technique for making distillate, I think, is not what most people are doing. It does make more stable shatter slabs, but if you're but everyone's kind of moved to live at this point. We we sell very few secondary de-waxing columns, but lots and lots of live resin material columns. Gotcha. Well, uh, on the note, a couple questions popped up during that, but uh, quickly on the on the note of the uh, fresh frozen, um, there's been uh, a bit of a debate about the best way to prep fresh frozen material for extraction. Uh, what's your approach to that? I mean, well, all the obvious things, right? You want to bucket off the stems and you want to get the water leaf off it. There's some technical stuff that I don't know if I really... I'm qualified to speak on because I don't have a lot of experience with harvesting for 
for fresh frozen for live, but it does need to be frozen very quickly. I know this much. I'm thinking more along the lines of like, uh, you know, I come from an ethanol extraction background, Mm -hmm. so we have a very specific mill size that we're shooting for. um, So we don't retain too much ethanol and so that you get maximum surface area Mm -hmm. Um, from a material prep standpoint to go into the columns. What are you, what are you looking for on a, like a mill spec? Oh, we don't mill it. It's just chunks. It's nugs. I mean, the best, the best fresh frozen material I find, I see it. It just, it looks like trimmed nugs practically, but all frozen. They feel like broccoli. It's bad. Okay. So you don't break them up at all. The the butane has yeah. the ability to, to penetrate when better pack, than ethanol. When you pack it, it gets broken up. I mean, the blue, the butane does have, I think, much less surface tension than ethanol, but the packing process really just crushes everything down when it's frozen. And then, Really, we want to have it packed evenly so that the solvent moves evenly through all the material and doesn't move around the denser portions. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think most people are spending time breaking that up because also it would be warming up while you're handling it. Mm-hmm. So I think mostly it's just shucked and bucked and plucked and then frozen and then kept frozen. All right. The other question that popped up while, uh, while you were describing uh, the single solvent de-wax was um, – Obviously, you're doing your your primary column de-wax with the fresh frozen. But if you did want to do something more along the lines of um, of getting the wax off later, there's a lot of stuff happening right now in the membrane filtration world. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any plans to incorporate anything like that in, in any of your future systems? It's funny you say that because I was just down in Long Beach for this uh, Good Life Gang panels that we spoke on, and I met a really nice guy down in Portland. Blanking on his name right now. Magister- Zev, Zev Feinstein. That's him, Magister Chemist on Instagram. I only know yeah. people by their Instagram names, by the way. Yeah, I just interviewed him like uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, really? To me, you will always you will always be modern extractor to me. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, Zev's a great dude. Really, really smart guy. Yeah, so we talked a bit, and he actually mentioned that about maybe doing butane. It would work because you know it can be in a pressurized housing. So I'm going to try to go down to Portland here in the next week or two and spend some time with him and some other people. And I think that's an interesting direction. Nice. Yeah. That same trip that I came up to, uh, to check out your facility, I went and, and, and took a, took a look at his as well. That was uh, one of the other stops on the trip. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you guys are getting it together. I, I was, I was watching that panel as well. Oh, nice. How'd we do? Yeah. yeah. Did great, oh, and nice. uh, as usual, the, uh, the the white claws came out. That's oh, like yeah. one of your one of your signature moves. I trademark, like trademark, right there, yeah. <laughs> Yep. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I had, I had passed a little bit of judgment on it and then I had one at your place no. and then I've, I have since purchased it. In fact, in your honor, oh, I brought one into the booth today. So, uh, there you go. See the claws, the law. There we go. Uh, d- d- just to let everybody know we're not sponsored. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we should be though. We should be. <laughs> let's do the, the dragon on the white claw can. Yeah. Um, so moving back into the, the, the technical side of things here, the, the another big debate that's going on in the uh, in the hydrocarbon world is about solvent recovery. So due to the, the limitations of how much solvent you can have in your facility and in your booth and in all these different rooms and storage capacities and all that, um, it's really important to be efficient with all of that. So mm-hmm. some of the people out there are going to argue that the active recovery is faster using the compressor. Uh, I know that you're a big proponent of passive recovery, and that's where your whole electro-passive thing comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, they both have their you know, strengths and weaknesses. Let's mm. start they by may. Def- they, I mean, 
they may have their strengths and weaknesses. The problem is that most people don't understand what those are. Well, that's where I'm going. Let's, right. let's define both of them. So what, right. to, just for the people who don't know, what is active, what is passive, and then what is – well, you already kind of told us about electropassive. So these are just kind of weed industry terms. Um, active means it uses a recovery pump, um, often called a compressor. And passive means it doesn't use a recovery pump and it condenses vapor to liquid just with temperature alone. So if we were to talk to an engineer about this, they, would, they wouldn't use those terms. They would just talk about vapor compressors. And I mean, a very technical term for passive recovery is I call it isobaric condensation or isobaric distillation. Iso meaning same, baric meaning pressure. So the evaporator and the condenser are operating at the same pressure. And how do we know? Well, they're just, they're connected together. In fact, we want them to be as connected as possible, which is why in the falling film and on that electropassive rainbow I was talking about, we use a, a four inch U. So there's absolutely no back pressure. Um, on the other system, we'll, we'll use redundant hoses. So we'll, we'll use twice as many hoses on vapor as we do for liquid. And what we want to do is minimize the back pressure between the collection pot where the boiling's happening and the recovery solvent column or the tube and shell heat exchanger where the condensation is happening. So we know they're at the same temperature, or excuse me, same pressure because they're connected. And so there's a boiling point to a, you know, all compounds have boiling points and the condensing temperature is this, the boiling temperature is a function of the pressure. So it's actually a point in a two dimensional space. And the boiling temperature is dependent on the pressure. They're, they're correlated. And the, um, let's see. So literally what we're doing is we're putting heat into a liquid at its boiling point, And that's converting the liquid to a vapor, which is then traveling through a conduit to a, something that's colder than that same temperature. And that's making it turn back from a vapor to a liquid. With a compressor or with a pump, or for an active scenario, you've got this, this machine, this mechanical device that uses an electric motor or some kind of motor to do work. That's the physics term, work. Um, it actually adds energy to the system, and it makes the, the whole point of a compressor is that you compress the gas, you increase its pressure. So the inlet pressure should be lower than the outlet pressure. That's what a compressor does. That's what it's designed to do. Now, why would you want to make the outlet pressure higher? Well, if you raise the pressure, then you also raise the boiling temperature at that. Well, higher pressure has a higher boiling temperature or condensing temperature. So in other words, by raising the pressure on the outlet of your pump, you've allowed yourself to liquid, to condense vapor to a liquid at a higher temperature. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, anyone who's looked at buying chillers knows the lower the temperatures go, the more expensive they get. And also, if you were to raise that boiling condensing temperature to above the ambient room temperature, like let's say room temperature is 20 C, and you've got your gas pressurized enough that it'll condense at 40 C, well, now you can just use a radiator and a fan to blow your heat off to the environment. You don't even need a chiller anymore or dry ice to condense. So that, in my mind, is the only reason. And I mean, like, well, 
there's maybe 1.5 reasons to use active. So that's the only reason. There's another half a reason I'll get to in a sec, but is that if you want to actually condense at a higher temperature, but nobody knows this in our industry or understands it. None of my competitors even understand it. The people that sell pumps don't understand it. The people that buy pumps don't. They just think pump, machine, make vapor turn to liquid. And that's what they think. The thing is, is in order to run that liquid again, as a solvent, you don't want to run it at 20C or 40C or 0C or negative 20C. You want to run it at negative 60C if you're doing live resin or making shatter. And if you have to have the chilling capacity somewhere to get it back down to negative 60C after the vapor has been turned back to a liquid, what that's going to do is make the outlet of your pump or compressor much, much lower than the inlet right? Which is the opposite of what a compressor is supposed to be doing. So now the outlet of your compressor is in a vacuum and the inlet is somewhere between zero and 20 PSI gauge. Well, now your pump is really acting as a flow regulator. It's only letting as much vapor pass as its piston or whatever its mechanism can gobble up at a time. But there's no longer, you no longer are pushing the gradient from a low pressure to high pressure. If you just remove the pump and connect its inlet to its outlet, that vacuum at the outlet from the low temperature and that higher pressure from your evaporation is naturally going to allow vapor molecules to move. And so that is, in a nutshell, my thesis for why pumps are unnecessary and active is the wrong concept. Now, there's a half a reason. There was a, remember I said there was a half a reason why you might want to do it? What's the half a reason? Well, the half a reason is cost savings because a compressor is cheaper than a very, very powerful chiller. A, a good a good compressor like a Corkin T91 costs about $20,000. Now, that's arguable. You might need to have a second one. So when the first one breaks, you can just switch over and get that first <laughs> one fixed. So it's possible. Back in the days of these CMEPOLs and stuff, you couldn't just own one pump. You had to own two. And by two, I meant three. And in reality, most people had five. Two of them were broken down for parts. Two were broken and being fixed at all times. And then there was one that was running. Here's the thing. Well, it might seem like the dry ice and the CO2 needed to replace a compressor is expensive, and it is. It's still only about a half a percent to a percent. I can show people the numbers if they want of the, the value of what you're creating. I look at it as a bit of an insurance policy. Yes, it might be more expensive than the electricity that it takes to turn a pump, but a pump can fail and it can fail silently, and you can be fouling oil without even knowing it. With passive recovery, it has that elegance to it. You know, it's there's a purism to it, but it's also practical in the sense that if you're making the highest quality oil, you're not just making crude for distillate, you don't want to take the risk of screwing it up. So I would imagine there's a safety component in there too as well. That's interesting because yes, yeah, so when you know when your recovery side is cold and your evaporation side is hot, if there was an earthquake or something, you had to get out of the building and all the power was cut. All that happens basically is that they slowly come back to equilibrium. Everything in nature is trying to come back to equilibrium. And the cold will warm up as the vapor condenses into it. And the hot will cool down as the vapor boils out. And usually you'll come back after, if you leave a run in the bit, you can actually leave a passive run and just let it finish on its own. Because all the vapor just ends up condensed into the solvent columns. And then your extract is done. Um, that's, so that's one argument. Whereas if a pump fails because the electricity fails, outcome can be unknown, undefined, depends on the circumstances. 
All right. I have one more bit. I have one more bit to add. Bring it. You said earlier that there were proponents of both, and I would like to I would like to venture this hypothesis that it's no longer really a question of which is better. The, the proof is in the pudding, and the proof is that all of my competitors, I believe, in 2021 are copying what I did, what we did in 2018. They're all coming out with their own forms of falling butane falling film evaporators. I know I know that Precision has one. I know that ETS or Pinnacle has one. Um, I don't try to look too much at what my competitors are doing. I'm trying to just stay out ahead of them. But that's kind of, you know, if all these people, I've been evangelizing passive since 2015 when I first discovered it by accident. I started off with a an ETS 1200. It had a care saver pump, you know. We were happy to get a half pound a minute. And it was possibly putting pump oil into our extracts that we didn't even know. And then I discovered by accident, just cooling the tank with dry ice, that if you opened it back up to the collection pot, it would foam that thing up way more, even when the pump was on. So really, I found discuss, I found passive by accident. I started off as a pump guy. I thought pumps were cool. And I learned that actually passive had had strengths that were hard to argue against. Let's put it that way. And I think the rest of the industry is discovering that too, including my competitors who frankly have been pushing pumps for the last five, six years and selling lots of pumps to lots of people that don't know any better. All right. Well, you, you'd mentioned uh, your, your butane falling film in there as well. And I'm, I'm very interested in that. Um, in season one for ethanol extraction, uh, I spoke to Ray from True Steel about his ethanol falling film. Mm-hmm. And the listeners got a rundown of how a falling film works in general. Um, mm-hmm. I can't expect everyone to have heard that full episode. So if, if, uh, if you want to give a quick rundown of, of what a falling film is, how that works, and then how, how it actually separates the, the oil from the butane in, in your system. Yeah. So – I really I like and respect Ray and True Steel. You know their their ethanol falling films honestly came out before ours did. Um, I think they're one of the first ones that got one to market. Um, I really respect the fact that they do their own things. They do their things their way, and they're not just out copying and stealing from everybody else. Um, we came out with an ethanol falling film maybe about a year, six months to a year after um, True Steel and Pinnacle did. Um, Ours uses kind of a very simple design. It's just sort of a swooping, looping design. I call it the silver serpent. It's back to that minimalist, like just get rid of everything that doesn't do anything. And you just left with the simplest form of what you're trying to accomplish. Well, butane is a solvent. Ethanol is a solvent. They've got different um, characteristics, but, you know, they all have boiling points and freezing points. And butane's got a higher boiling, or excuse me, it's got a much lower boiling point than ethanol. Ethanol at one atmosphere boils at 78 Celsius, I think. And butane at one atmosphere boils just below zero Celsius. A side effect of that is that at a given temperature, butane's going to have much more pressure than ethanol will. So here at, at the surface of planet Earth, we're at roughly, um, roughly 760 inches or millimeters of mercury and 20 Celsius-ish. So butane wants to be about 20 PSI at 20 Celsius. So we consider it a compressed gas. That's how we think of it. And we think of it as it's got to be inside a cylinder under pressure for it to be a liquid. 
But this is a lot of this stuff is just how our human minds are adapted to only be intuitive to our common experience. So we we only live here on the surface of planet Earth. We don't live, you know, at a higher pressure or lower temperature. Butane, when you cool it down, it behaves just like water. It's a subcooled liquid. Um, so really just by running the exact same falling film that we designed for ethanol and just running it at a lower temperature, we're able to do the same process. And so that was kind of the idea that sparked the whole thing. And then there was about a year and a half of design and experimentation and iteration to get it to into a functioning product. But that's how the butane falling film was born. It became, I think it went on sale in 2018. Or was, we were finishing our prototyping in the summer of 2018 and sold the first few models that fall. And actually we sold them to a, a rather famous client that kind of revolutionized the pricing structure of live resin in the state of California using this ability to pull solvent off at three to six pounds a minute. And it can go higher than that. It's really all about the heating and cooling you have and the surface area. So it takes for butane to either evaporate liquid to get to vapor or to condense vapor to a liquid requires about three kilowatts per pound per minute. So if you want to do three pounds a minute, you need nine kilowatts of heating, nine kilowatts of cooling, roughly. Ethanol, it's seven. So energetically, these light hydrocarbons, they just have much less enthalpy of vaporization. That's the technical term for the energy that's absorbed when it makes a phase transition from a liquid to a vapor or is released when it goes from a vapor back to a liquid. Okay. Uh, for those of the listeners out there that don't fully know what a falling film is, let me just set the stage a little bit. You've got a, uh, a vertical column that's a, a tube and shell with a spray head at the top of some sort that's basically dispersing your solvent down the tubes of the tube and shell and then it's heated to a temperature that evaporates that and then basically whatever uh the, the oil that you're looking for is going to fall down into a collection pot and then the solvent you're trying to recollect vaporizes and heads elsewhere to be condensed elsewhere exactly. uh, is, is that the same concept um with, with the butane one as the uh, as the falling the ethanol it's actually literally the same device believe it or not it's run a little bit differently we don't need gear pumps and we don't need a vacuum pump for the butane version because we can manipulate the pressure of butane with its temperature so well but it's okay. literally the same device we we use the four inch heat exchanger which we don't usually use for ethanol and then sometimes we use a six inch as well. So it's, it's almost identical with just a few tweaks to it. And it's a different set of operational parameters and some different SOPs. Um, and it does need to be kind of like, man, it, it has to be run. You know, it's an instrument. It's like, you know, the bassoon doesn't play itself. Yeah, with the ethanol, you can kind of set it and forget it until it's time to empty the tank. There's or... some automation going on there. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we've got gear pumps. We've actually got a PLC. We've got level sensors. We are going to be automating our, our butane stuff here. That's kind of our next iteration. But um... when, when using the, uh, the falling field for the butane uh, in the construction of it, did you have to go about it a different way based on the, the flammability or explosiveness of the, the solvents that you're running in it? It has to be rated to a higher pressure. It's rated to 150 or 250, whereas the ethanol is just rated to 15 PSI. But um, the ethanol version is just overbuilt, essentially. You know, it's, it's good to the higher pressure as well. Gotcha. It just, just has a lower um, PSI relief valve on it. Okay. 
Uh, so it really doesn't have much to do with the with the solvent. It's more the pressures you're running the system at. It's all about the operational parameters. Yeah, because I mean, because the instruments themselves are good for such wide ranges of pressures and temperatures being stainless steel. So, for instance, you would run pure butane, excuse me, pure propane at different temperatures and pressures than pure butane. That's a for instance. It's just, uh, I mean, you could evaporate water with these things. It's just different temperatures and pressures. One, one good analogy, actually, because people are really used to the wipers, the falling, the, excuse me, the wiped film evaporators. Mm-hmm. In a falling film situation, the hash oil, the solute, is your residue. And the solvent you're recovering, whether it be ethanol or butane, that's your distillate. Mm-hmm. If you think about a poke or a, a wipe where you're coming down, you've got one ball coming off, that's, the, that's your distillate, and one ball coming off, that's your residue. Same story in a falling film evaporator, but your distillate's your solvent that you're recovering, and the good stuff you want to keep, that's your residue, the pass-through, the stuff that doesn't evaporate and condense. Okay. Um, so moving on from that, uh, you talked, uh, a little bit about, about some, uh, some competitors earlier. Uh, I like, I like to play nice on the show, so I don't want to get too, too far into it, but, um, you know, when, when extraction was, was in its infancy, a lot of the major manufacturers kind of stayed in their lanes mm-hmm. and they made their thing, their piece of the puzzle. Um, and then as, as things grew, as the market grew, as everybody realized that a lot of this stuff they could source or they could build, mm-hmm. um, everybody started making their the entire line and it became a little less of a specialized niche that each company contributed to. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that said, what are you doing to stay on top of your market share now that there's uh, some more competition in the space? Well, I think there's two sides to that question. Like one, one is what am I doing to compete in that broad offering of everything else that I didn't do originally. And then the second half of that question is, what am I doing to compete with all the ankle biters that are trying to come in and compete with us in, in our, our lane? I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is I really like to stay in my lane. You know, we are primarily a hydrocarbon closed loop system manufacturer. That's our claim to fame. That's how we were born. That's what we specialize in. It's where our passion is. Um, you know, we too, we realized a long time ago, 2015, that, you know, well, we've got this cooling technique and NEG60 ethanol will also make shatter. So we could put ethanol in these systems and have ethanol systems that run cold. And then we can skirt around the need for the certification because they're no longer pressure vessels. So that was one thing we started teaching people early was that they could run ethanol in their closed loops. Um, it doesn't work great. It's not the best way to run ethanol. I mean, especially as sizes scale up. Um, But we did them, you know, because recovery of ethanol was such a challenge, we created a falling film evaporator for ethanol. And that was a a big hit in 2018. And honestly, some people only know of us as the creators of the Busy Bee ethanol falling film. They don't even know that we make hydrocarbon systems. But I'm really actually pleased because, you know, in the summer of 2019, everybody was gearing up for hemp and we we drank the Kool-Aid and we bought a bunch of centrifuges. We also started engineering some other very large scale solutions, which was great R&D, but the whole industry, you know, first with VapeGate and then with HempGate and then with COVIDGate, it's like that industry has just been really sunk. Um, and it's caused us to pull back into our niche and what we do best because people still call us for the, the closed loop systems. That business actually picked back up again during 
the beginning of COVID. Well, I'm sure. And Vapegate too, I'm sure helped you a lot because their distillate was huge. And then the, the whole distillate cart thing caused everybody to come back to dabs and, and, and sold, approach that very yeah, differently. We sold a lot of crude systems too. So, and there was just a lot of used equipment on the market after Vapegate. That hurts all the OEMs. Because who's going to buy new if you can buy used? Yeah, stainless steel doesn't go bad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm actually really happy to focus on what we do best. I mean, the one new offering that we're bringing is automation because we can add it to our existing offerings. We've automated the ethanol falling film. It's got a PLC. It does startups. It does pump priming. It does restarts. It's fabulous. That whole PLC was designed to be generic and broad-based so we can apply it to the rest of the the, – CLS lineup. And my goal is to apply it to the full lineup. So we don't have just one system to compete with Luna, for instance, but we can automate any custom system you want. We're going to call it Stella Technologies, by the way, because everyone knows I love the stars. All right. And, um, but yeah, so what's my opinion about my competitors? I mean, I think that hey, you case, asked yourself that question. Man. I, think I this, try to stay neutral. I don't know. I'm going to give you a very nice answer. I think <laughs> I think that this space is overcrowded. I think that there's enough incumbents already. I don't think there's any room for any newbies to come in at this point. I think that the incumbents are actually need to consolidate a bit. We saw that with Pinnacle and ETS. I'm constantly trolling Precision because I think they're a fabulous marketing and sales organization. Um, But... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm happy to compete with anyone so long as they're not biting our stees and copying our stuff, you know. And here's a message out there to everybody is if you want to make busy bees or busy bee knockoffs, just talk to me. I will work an agreement with you. We'll have a royalty agreement and I will design a system for you to build. And then, you know, you don't have to be a hater. But um, yeah, I think that I think that the incumbents should consolidate a bit and i think that the technical innovation is largely worked out now except for the automation piece yeah if you're going to be a new entry to the to the equipment manufacturing game right now you better come with something pretty fantastic to be able to stand a chance come work with me honestly i will sign ndas i will co-patent stuff with people you know i would at this point in my career honestly i'm semi-retired i want to put other people on and bring up other people's game and do it in a collaborative manner honestly so i encourage anybody out there who has great ideas great inventions wants to be a competitor welders that want to get in the game we need american welders but we need american welders that want to be welders not closed loop system manufacturing you know i want people who can build stuff for us and work together long term that's the message long term Right on. I like your approach to that. Thank you. Um, so you, you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, I'll give you the chance to, to plug it uh, here at the end. Um, do you have any new offerings coming out specifically in 2021 that, that uh, you want to drop or uh, announce at all? Well, the I mean, the Beast system, I call it a meta system because it's a system for building systems. That's largely been finished for the last two years. You know, we do a little bit of innovating here and there. Um, In 2021, we're going to bring automation to that whole system. And we're going to begin the, we've, we've built our own booth for our own purposes and we're prototyping and innovating and iterating on it. I would like to build booths for my clients because, or at least offer them. I mean, personally, I'm not going to manufacture 
the sheet metal, but I would like to, every closed loop system needs a booth and every booth needs a closed loop system. And I think that we should offer booths to our clients. I think we should work with some of the incumbents in the booth space to make booths for us. OEM, HAL, C1D1 Labs, all you guys out there, Podtronics, hit me up. And, um, but I want them to be busy, be OEM systems that we are booths that are designed to integrate with the machine too. That's another aspect is that I see, I no longer see the booth as this um, annoying requirement that we have to put our machine in to operate it. I see the booth and the machine as being a one entity, a seamless integration. Um, That's your style, man. I like it. Make it part of the tool. We start exactly. So we make the environment part of the tool. So we, you know, we started manifolding our booths on the outside, all the penetrations for the appliances, all the appliances. I would even like to see the appliances managed from a master PLC that also runs the booth. So really the booth becomes the tool and the booth contains the closed loop system and the peripherals are all outside or in their mechanical closets. And it's really one complex system. So now you take an approach, like you were saying earlier, as uh, a computer engineer would uh, to solving these problems. When it comes down to actually dealing with the PLCs and doing any of that programming, do you play any kind of a part in that? No, hilariously, no. Actually, I don't know much about PLC programming. Uh, we hire an, an electrical engineer. He's, you know, he's a subcontractor and he does a great job. And I'd, I'd hire someone in-house full-time if I knew I had job security for them. Um, but right now it just makes a little more sense to outsource it. And it's so specialized. It's something that I don't want to reinvent the wheel and I don't want to learn how to program PLCs. I'm just going to hire someone to do it. Um, but at least you can speak their language oh, a little yeah. more so than your average person could so that you can oh, yeah. communicate. I am fluent in geek. <laughs> Extremely that's why fluent. we get along i can even translate geek into chad and back so <laughs> any chads out there that need to talk to some engineers just hit me up you know 300 bucks an hour <laughs> all right now that um next question i got for you is uh, about about trade shows and you know things are starting to open back up a little bit now that that's happening uh what are your plans what are you going to be doing you got you got bookings at any of the uh events coming up concentration or good life gang events any of that stuff yeah, so it just got back from Long Beach from that GLG event, and we co-sponsored one down in Grants Pass a couple weeks before. Um, I'm really enjoying that community. Um, I really like these panel discussions. I think it's a great opportunity to meet fellow vendors and also get out in front of the audience. I'd really like to see some panels where the audience drives the conversation and even participates in it. And to that effect, I might try to organize some of that. Um, as far as trade shows go, I'm going to... I'll hit up that concentration one. I'm a little burnt out on trade shows. I feel like they cost a lot of money for us. They are exhausting for me and my whole team. It really takes about a week to get out there and get back and recover. And then, you know, you got to get back to the actual grind. And honestly, the quality of the, of the um, clientele that coming, I just don't feel like these people are really very sincere about what they're doing. So I actually prefer to get our clients through referral. There's a saying in the real estate industry that your best, your greatest compliment is a referral. And people, 90% of our clientele hit us up and say, hey, I saw a machine at so-and-so's lab. I want one just like that. Or, hey, so-and-so who I trust told me I have to buy from you. 
that is really the best source of clientele in my mind. And I'm actually thinking about just going to the trade shows from now on and renting a 10 by 10 for a couch and a whiteboard and a drink fridge and just hanging out and shooting the shit and then walking the floor and doing what we call rolling and trolling and maybe handing out, you know, half off coupons for our demo design consultations. Cause I'd rather bring people to us in Tacoma where we have the equipment all set up and we can really teach you something rather than putting all this work into bringing some, some small section of our equipment to a venue where we can't even operate it. And then we've just got people coming through for five minutes at a time. They don't really get enough knowledge to really learn anything. If I could hand out a half off coupon, we usually charge a thousand bucks for a full day demo design consultation. We do demos on the equipment. We listen to your use cases and come up with an invoice for you. The thousand dollars is credit to buy the system with. So it's free if you really buy a system and it's honestly cheap for a day of our time. If you don't, I'd like to hand out like maybe a $500 off. You pay 500 instead of a thousand. You still got to put some skin in the game and then bring people to us. So that's probably what I'm looking at doing for this year. And then uh, hitting up as many of the good life gang parties as I can. And also doing some events of our own in our new showroom in Tacoma. It's kind of a mixed use showroom, R and D lab slash classroom and place where we can teach classes for uh, closed loop systems. Yeah, I was just up there for, for the audience. I was just up there checking it out. They've got a really cool thing going on up there. It's a inviting environment with a, with a booth in it and lots of couches. It's a, it's a fun place to hang out for the day. And uh, you pick up a thing or two as well. Nice. So, yeah. Um, I, w- the one thing that you did mention was these uh, these panel discussions mm-hmm. um, with the uh, Good Life Gang and all that going on. Uh, I will say that I personally would like to give a little shout out to Sid Cat. I, uh, I love what you're doing as far as uh, covering the uh, the extraction space. There's not a lot of, yeah, there's not a lot of people doing it. So, you know, yeah. you got to give a tip of the hat. So, good yeah. stuff. It's hard to wrangle a bunch of exotic cats, you know. <laughs> Extractors are all exotic cats in my mind. And you gotta <laughs> rawr, 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 pissing on the wall and Yeah. Well uh just to wrap things up a little bit here, uh what are you personally most excited about regarding the future of extraction and where the industry's going? I'd like to see national legalization so that we don't have this fragmented patchwork of laws where one state you buy it at an adult use store and you cross the border and you're arrested and put in prison for five years. That's obscene to me. Agreed. You know, I'd like to see people in states like Oregon and California, cannabis become an export market to the rest of the states. That'd be great. That would help out, you know, the, our clientele who have to put a lot of money up to buy this equipment up front. You know, sometimes they can't even get it financed. Oftentimes they can't get it financed. And then, they have trouble just getting their product out to market because of the, the regulators and the fragmentation of the industry. And if there's a more liquid market for good actors to get their products sold, then more people can buy equipment and pay off their equipment and the whole industry can flourish. So that's what I'm looking forward to. All right. I, I usually stop there with the, uh, the the personal questions, but I got a special one for you now that uh, <laughs> now that you've changed uh, this this craft beer guy into the occasional drinker of a White Claw. Oh, what's nice. your favorite? What's your favorite flavor White Claw? You know, definitely the new blackberry or pineapple. You should check them out. They're in variety pack three. <laughs> right. Before that, it was watermelon and black cherry. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, how can people get a hold of you, man? Uh, the best way is to text me. My phone number is on my Instagram. It's 206-960-1665. Please text me because I keep my ringers off. Um, I have two phones just to separate the traffic and both the ringers are off. And I wouldn't be able to get anything done if I was just answering the phone all day. But if you text me, I will get back to you as soon as I can. I can oftentimes talk to five people at once over text while I'm in a meeting. So really, that's the best way. I think DMing me on Instagram is also equally good. I answer every single DM. I answer every single text message. I even answer every comment if I can find it. So frankly, you can just comment at me in my feed and I'll probably answer you. And if I forget to just hit me up in the DM or text me or text uh, my coworkers. If you can't get a hold of me, Calvin and Kyle, both of their text message numbers are in my bio on Instagram. It's at busy B nine, nine, nine B I Z Z Y B E E nine, nine, nine. Email works too, but I don't always check my email. So don't email. Them. Don't email me. If you're going to email <laughs> I me mean, for important stuff, email me, but CC the rest of the team. And, uh, and then text me if it's important. I'll go look at it. All right. Well, hey, thank you, uh, Boris, Boris Kogan. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks again to Boris for joining us today. If you're interested in becoming a beast wrangler and wielding the power of a busy bee system, or just talking to them about which of their products will work best for your unique situation, hit Boris up directly, 206-960-1665, or on Instagram, at BusyB999. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on the show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram, at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys like the show, please subscribe and give us a rating. The more subscribers and better ratings we get, the better guests I can book for you here in the future. If you guys really are digging what I'm doing here and would be kind enough to help me keep expanding the audience, I would really appreciate it if you could write me a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. Those reviews will help me keep expanding the reach that the show has, which just may help me negotiate some killer discounts on equipment and lab supplies for you, the ModX listeners. Stay tuned for next week when Vaughn Hartog, extraction wizard and founder of Media Bros, will join us to talk about CRC and filtration media. We'll cover what CRC is, why it's such a polarizing topic, how he approaches the haters, as well as discussing some different finishing techniques for BHO concentrates, and how, when used correctly, CRC will help you get there. A big thanks to Isato Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout-out to the New Fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon. <laughs> <laughs>